The scripture this morning comes from 1 Corinthians 15, verse 12 through 58. Now, if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. We are even found to be misrepresenting God because we testified about God that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise, if it is true that the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. But each in his own order, Christ the firstfruits, then at his coming those who belong to Christ. Then comes the end when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father after destroying every rule and every authority and power. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. For God has put all things in subjection under his feet. But when it says all things are put in subjection, it is plain that he is accepted who put all things in subjection under him. When all things are subjected to him, then the son himself will also be subjected to him who put all things in subjection under him, that God may be all in all. Otherwise, what do people mean by being baptized on behalf of the dead? If the dead are not raised at all, why are people baptized on their behalf? Why are we in danger every hour? I protest, brothers, by my pride in you, which I have in Christ Jesus our Lord. I die every day. What do I gain if, humanly speaking, I fought with beasts at Ephesus? If the dead are not raised, let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. Do not be deceived. Bad company ruins good morals. Wake up from your drunken stupor as it is right and do not go on sinning. For some have no knowledge of God. I say this to your shame. But someone will ask, how are the dead raised? What kind of body do they come? You foolish person, what you sow does not come to life unless it dies. And what you sow is not the body that is to be, but a bare kernel, perhaps of wheat or of some other grain. But God gives it a body as he has chosen, and to each kind of seed its own body. For not all flesh is the same, but there is one kind for humans, another for animals, another for birds, and another for fish. There are heavenly bodies and earthly bodies, but the glory of the heavenly is of one kind, and the glory of the earthly is of another. There is one glory of the sun, and another glory of the moon, and another glory of the stars, for stars differs from star in glory. So it is with the resurrection of the dead. What is sown is perishable. What is raised is imperishable. It is sown in dishonor. It is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness. It is raised in power. It is sown a natural body. It is raised a spiritual body. If there is a natural body, there is also a spiritual body. Thus it is written, the first man, Adam, became a living being. The last Adam became a life-giving spirit. But it is not the spiritual that is first, but the natural, and then the spiritual. The first man was from the earth, a man of dust. The second man is from heaven. As was the man of dust, so also are those who are of the dust. 
And as is the man of heaven, so also are those who are of heaven. Just as we have been born the image of the man of dust, we shall also bear the image of the man of heaven. I tell you this, brothers, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet. For the trump will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable and we shall be changed. For this perishable body must put on the imperishable and this mortal man, this mortal body must put on immortality. When the perishable puts on the imperishable and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. Oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God, who gives us the victory through Lord our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. Thanks, Johanna. Anybody have some Gatorade for her? To <laughs> How's that for a resurrection passage? <laughs> For reasons I don't really understand, one of my greatest and most consistent burdens as a pastor has always been to help people really consider the claims of Christianity. I think at least part of it is that growing up, I never had anyone who sat me down and looked me in the eye and said, consider this. I'm going to talk with you about this until at least you understand it well enough to accept or reject. And so I think maybe not having grown up with that, I feel a special burden to offer that. So for non-Christians, I, I, want them to, I want to help them better grasp what it is they at least think they're rejecting. It, it happens more often not, than not, Grace, when, when somebody that I, I'm, I'm sharing the gospel with or speaking with tells me they don't believe it or they don't believe in God. More often than, than not, the God that they describe that they don't believe in, I don't believe in either. It's just not the God of the Bible that they're talking about that they don't believe in. And so I feel this real burden to present the God of Scripture to them, that if they are going to reject him, it'll at least be him that they're rejecting. It's my hope that by helping them consider the true God, they might believe in him and be saved. And for the professing Christian, most of you all, I want to help you really consider what you claim to believe. <laughs> I want you really to consider whether what you claim to believe makes your life make sense in light of that claim. I, I just I feel really burdened to hear people professing faith in Christ consider, like James offers to us, do you, do you live like this? Is, is there any sense in which your life looks different than people who don't claim to believe these things? And so, if it were up to me, all my sermons would be titled things like the ridiculousness of Christmas and the incredibleness of Easter and the insanity of missions, and because that's what it is. And if you think even for a moment about the fact that we have a God who became a man, who suffered at the hands of men, though he was God, was crucified, dead, and buried, and then rose from the dead, and now in glorified a glorified body is seated at the right hand of the Father, interceding. I mean, that's, I don't know, I don't know if you ever thought about that, but that's some pretty strange stuff, right? But it's true. <laughs> and so I feel especially burdened to help you all consider this, maybe freshly for the first time. 
And so that's my that's my heart here. That's my hope here. Three things. The resurrection is a fact. It's a fact. So what does it mean to live in light of that being a fact and not just a fun story? Secondly, Jesus did, in fact, rise from the dead. What does it look like to live in light of that? And thirdly, you will rise from the dead if your hope is in Christ. What does it look like to live in light of that? So again, there's perhaps no more significant example of the not normalness of Christianity than an Easter. The claim that Jesus rose from the dead, that all who hope in him will share in his resurrection, those are staggering claims. So again, my main aim is to call you this morning to consider the nature of the resurrection and then either live like it's true or live like it's not. (laughs) Eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow you'll die if it's not true. But if it is, oh, grace if it is. So let's pray. Let's pray that God would open our eyes to the resurrection and all of its implications for all of the world. God, please, please help us to see what is true. We don't want to dupe anybody. That's not the point of Christians or evangelism or missions. We don't want to dupe people into believing something that's not true for some kind of weird, twisted, personal gain. There are some, I guess, who who do that. But that is not what we are after. What we are after is to hold up for the world to see the truth that there is a God who's greater than we could ever imagine. And who sent his son to die to reconcile the sinful world to God. Please, please help us to see that freshly this morning. If there's someone in this room who has heard these words all their life but never truly considered them, may this be that day. And if there are some who have considered them but not carefully considered what it means to live in light of them, may today be that day. And for all of us, may our true hope not be in our brain power or our ability to think carefully, or our ability to act rightly. But may all of us find our hope ultimately in Jesus Christ, who alone did all of that and credited that to our account, that we gain access to, not by doing enough good stuff, but by grace through faith in him. May this be the day of salvation, and may this be the day of clarity as to what that means in light of the fact that Jesus rose from the dead, and so will all who are in him. I pray this in his name. Amen. So again, the first thing I want you to see is that the resurrection is a historical fact. It is an actual event that took place in actual history in the exact same way as the Declaration of Independence was written in 1776, and we landed on the moon in 1959, and Michigan State won the men's national basketball championship in 2000. For reasons I don't really understand, Jesus' resurrection is often not treated like those things. It's treated more like a spiritual lesson to learn from than a historical claim to be accepted or rejected. For that reason, it's important for us to have at least a basic understanding of the the historical accounts that have come down to us. Many of you do. I'm thankful for that. Because the kids did a great job of retelling the Easter story last Sunday, and many of you are here for that, and Mike a bit on 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 Monday Thursday. I'm not gonna I'm not gonna redo all of that, but I do want to give you a brief flyover, and I can't urge you enough to consider these claims in simplest terms and in broadest strokes. Here, here you go. Here's here's Christianity. Somewhere around six B.C. 
at the hand of God, Jesus of Nazareth, was conceived in his virgin mother's womb by the Holy Spirit. That's crazy. If you didn't know that, think about that this morning. That's some crazy stuff. He was and is the very Son of God and the long-promised Messiah, or Christ. For the first 30 years of ministry, even though he was truly God and truly man, he lived in relative obscurity as a carpenter's son. And then at the appointment of God, the time of his earthly ministry came. For three years, he traveled, taught, healed, confronted, and lived as a perfect example of what it means to truly honor God as a man. As Jesus gradually, over time, revealed his true nature to the world, he was met by a strong reaction from almost everyone. He was increasingly revered by the humble and the lowly, even as he was increasingly despised by the proud and powerful religious leaders. These opposite responses grew and grew and grew until something had to give. They, they couldn't continue to exist in parallel. Something had to give, and so it did. And what we now call Palm Sunday, Jesus rode into Jerusalem on a donkey for the first, and for the first time, publicly and unmistakably presented himself as Messiah to the hordes of people who had gathered there to celebrate the Passover feast. He did this to the extravagant praise of the people and the fierce anger of the Jewish leaders. Throughout the course of the week, however, something changed. It went from the extravagant praise of the people more towards the fierce anger of the Jewish leaders. Why did that happen? How did that happen? It happened because the masses realized that Jesus was not the kind of Messiah that they were expecting. They were expecting a powerful military leader who would overthrow Rome and restore the nation of Israel to a place of David, King David-like prosperity and power. But when it became clear that this is not the kind of Messiah, at this time at least, that Jesus understood himself to be, the people quickly buckled under the mounting pressure of the religious leaders. So by the time of the Passover meal, by the time it was actually celebrated on Thursday night, a trap had already been laid for Jesus' capture, torture, and crucifixion. Having been brought through a series of sham trials, Roman and Jewish, throughout Thursday night and into Friday morning, and having been severely beaten nearly to death during that time, the final verdict was finally handed down. Guilty of nothing in particular. Knowing this was the Father's plan all along, however, Jesus willingly gave himself over to be crucified to save the people, not from Rome, but from themselves, from their sins. By 9 a.m. on Friday morning then, Jesus was hanging on a cross, and by 3 p.m. that afternoon, he had died. He was put in a tomb and remained there Friday, Saturday, and Sunday. Then on the third day, he rose from the dead, revealing himself to many in his glorified body. He remained on earth for a number of weeks before ascending to the right hand of the Father, advocating, even still, for those who would trust in him and await his return in power. Again, Grace, the main thing to understand is that this is not presented in the Bible by anyone who presents it or anyone who responds to it as a parable or as symbolic or as a spiritual lesson. It is presented as a historical fact. And here's the thing. Settle on this this morning, Grace, right now. 
Either it is true and we ought all to honor and trust in Jesus as the resurrected Messiah, or there are no people, like Paul says in our passage for this morning, to be more pitied than those of us who have duped into believing this lie. Let me say that again. Take this home with you. Put this on your center thing of your table when you eat. Either it is true that Jesus rose from the dead and we all ought to honor and trust him as the resurrected Messiah, or there is no one more pitied to be more pitied than us who have been duped into believing this lie. Grace, kids, guests, skeptics, believers, consider this now. This, the fact of the resurrection is the only reason, it's the only reason to accept the rest of the claims of Christianity and to trust in Jesus as the Christ. This is the foundation of our faith. Everything rises or falls based on whether or not the resurrection truly happened, whether it is a historical fact or a historical hoax. If it is a hoax, we should dismiss it and every other aspect of Christianity. If it is fact, and it is, it means that we ought to trust and eagerly submit to everything else that Jesus said and did. The rest of the sermon is meant to help you understand what it means to live in light of the resurrection, Jesus and yours in him, and to go after it in faith. Christ Jesus is risen, Grace Church. He is risen indeed. Let's live like it. So with all of that, it's important to ask what what difference the resurrection made. I mean, it, it's kind of neat, right, just to think about that. Uh, years and years ago, I had this fish that... It just was trying to die. It really was. But over this long period of time. And so I, I videoed it, of course. And, and it would seem to be dead. And I'd flick it. And it would, boom, the fish would come back alive for another, like, 30 seconds. And I thought, that's amazing. You know, so here, here's the thing. Jesus really did die, not just sort of fake like my fish. And he really did rise from the dead. That's, that's amazing all by itself. And that means we should listen to him. But that's not, that's not anywhere near the end of the story. It's, it's again, a, clearly a remarkable thing all by itself. But the Bible presents it as much more than some sort of neat parlor trick. The Bible presents many staggering, staggering benefits of the resurrection for those who would trust in Jesus. What was accomplished by Jesus' resurrection and what does it mean to live in light of that? I got a list for you. You ready? I wrote it down. The resurrection proved that Jesus was truly the Son of God. And so let's live like it in a state of constant, humble awe. The resurrection ensured that we have a Savior who will never die again. So let's live like it in unwavering confidence. The resurrection gives repentance, we're told. So let's live like it in turning from our sins continually to righteousness. Living hope and new birth come through the resurrection. So let's live like it, knowing that we have ultimate victory. The resurrection is tied to the forgiveness of our sins. So let's live like it, casting aside all shame and guilt. The resurrection was for our justification, that we would be declared not guilty by God. So let's live like it, walking in freedom. The resurrection ushered in the indwelling Holy Spirit. So let's live like it obeying in a power greater than anything we have in us. The resurrection guarantees that there will be no condemnation for those who are in Christ. 
So let's live like it in full assurance of our salvation. The resurrection secured Jesus' continual presence with us and intercession for us. So let's live like it, knowing that we are never truly alone and we will never be unheard when we cry out to God. The resurrection is a guarantee that there will be a coming judgment. So let's live like it, calling the world to repent and believe. But the resurrection is also a guarantee that we are freed from the wrath of God during the coming judgment if our hope is in Christ. So let's live like it, running quickly to the gospel whenever we stumble. And lastly, Jesus' resurrection means that death is dead and Christians will rise again with Jesus. And so let's live like it. And I'll tell you how in a minute. What an awesome, awesome list of resurrection blessings. What then does it mean to live even more fully in light of these things? Let me give you two in particular. If I were to ask you, I got another question for you. If I were to ask you right now to write down a list of everything that you want most in life and put it in order, make a list right now of everything you want most in life. Be honest. I'm not going to look at it. Just mentally make that list. I wonder what you'd write on it. Kids? If you can have anything you want right now, anything, anything you want, what's the first thing that would be on your list? What would you write down? Adults, what would be on yours? The fact of the matter is, if your list isn't primarily filled with the 12 things I just read to you, your list is too short-sighted. Your sights are set way too low. You want things that are too puny. You should want more than what you wrote down. If ever there were a time to quote C.S. Lewis, and there usually is a time to quote C.S. Lewis, it's right here. It would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong based on his commands and what he offers us in Christ, but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures. Your list is weak. It's weak if it's not made up of those 12 things. Your list is not too big, and it's not that you want too much. It's that you want too little. We are half-hearted creatures fooling about with drink, this is C.S. Lewis, and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered us. Like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea, we are far too easily pleased. To begin to grasp the resurrection of Jesus and its implications to truly believe it as the historical fact that it is, is to be filled with a sense of awe and wonder that cannot be matched. It is to be filled, it is to be overwhelmed with a hope and a gladness that nothing else can produce. It is to be filled with an amazement and a humility that is truly unique. And it is and to be filled with that kind of awe and wonder and hope and gladness and amazement and humility is to be filled with the need to express those things back to the source of them all, to the triune God. This is why the author of Hebrews declares in light of the resurrection, now may the God of peace who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus Christ, that is who raised Jesus from the dead, the great shepherd of the sheep, by the blood of the eternal covenant, equip you with everything good that you may do his will, working in us that which is pleasing in his sight through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever and ever. He, he contemplates the resurrection and then bursts out into doxology. You cannot understand the nature of the resurrection and the benefits that are ours through it 
and not turn it back to God in worship. That's that's the first and main response. Grace, let us live like Jesus rose from the dead, like he really did. And let us know that doing so means being filled with worship, filled with satisfaction in God, filled with the need to turn it back to him in song and in prayer. The Father and to the Son, whom he brought again from the dead, and to the Spirit who grants us eyes to see and ears to hear, to behold such things. Praise God, Grace. Praise him in the highest. Christ is risen. By the end, you'll get it. So if, in fact, Christ is raised from the dead, we got to live like it. And the first thing is we praise God in the highest. And here's the second Living as if Jesus really rose from the dead means telling everyone we meet. (laughs) Not merely, even mainly as an obligation, although it is a command, but ultimately out of an inability to keep it to ourselves. Just like we can't keep our gladness to ourselves, we need to turn it back to God. We can't keep it to ourselves. We need to turn it out to the world. Let me add more more questions. I, I think in terms of questions. What would you do if you had a good friend who won the Super Bowl as the starting quarterback? What would you do? What would you do if you had an immediate family member who was a part of a NASA team that landed on the moon for just the second time? What would you do if one of your kids made a billion dollars by developing a life-saving medical device? I know what you would do. I know what I would do. In each of these cases, amazed by the accomplishment and honored to be closely tied to it, You would tell everyone. Some of you would try to pull it off with a humble brag, but you'd all tell somebody. I would too. We we have to. We need to. It's it's part of how God wired us. You wouldn't be able to help it. You couldn't not tell people. You you couldn't keep it to yourself. Again, C.S. Lewis says, I think we delight to praise what we enjoy because the praise not merely expresses but completes the enjoyment. It is its appointed consummation. When we really love something, we, we have to tell other people. We can't keep it to ourselves. And the greater the thing, the greater our need to share it with others. If you've known me for any length of time... You've heard of Michigan State <laughs> Athletics. You've heard of Fogo de Chao. You've heard of Smokey's Barbecue. You've heard of Slap Your Mama Seasoning. <laughs> You've heard of Stretchy Jeans. <laughs> and Impact Drivers. That's a big one. Those are great things. And so I tell you about them. But above all of those, infinitely above all of those, I hope you've heard me tell you about Jesus. Jesus' resurrection from the dead. If we find ourselves compared to share those good things, if you've, if you've ever bought five things of Slap Your Mama to hand out to your friends, which I have, if you've ever shared that kind of horizontal good news, you cannot be silent about the greatest news of all time. Jesus Christ is risen from the dead. Let's live like it, Grace Church. And living like it means telling the whole world. All right, so the resurrection is a fact. Jesus rose from the dead, and we need to live like it. And here's the third and last point. We, too, will rise from the dead, and so we need to live like it. You must come to know the resurrection is fact. You must come to know that Jesus really rose from the dead, and you must come to know that you, as well, will in Christ. 1 Corinthians 6.14, And God raised the Lord, Jesus, and will also raise us by his power. 2 Corinthians 4.14, He who raised Jesus... The Lord Jesus will also 
raise us with Jesus. If you were here last week, you remember we briefly considered the order of salvation. The order of salvation is just an attempt to explain all of what the Bible means by what it means to be saved by God. And if you remember that, you may also remember that the final two aspects of God's saving work in us are death and glorification. Death? What does that mean? Counterintuitively, and not even a little bit ironically, for Christians, death is a part of being saved. At death, by God's design, our bodies go into the ground to decay, but our souls, however, are finally and fully made holy by God. From death unto eternity, we will never again feel an ounce of desire for anything other than God and his will. Instead, we'll be entirely satisfied by God. Sin will have no hold on us ever again once we die. That's awesome. Instead, we will be entirely and completely and fully glad in God. Our souls will then be brought into God's presence as we await the return of Jesus. That's death. And the final saving work of God, we call glorification. In that, in that, every single person who is trusted in Jesus will be glorified. Jesus did not die, Grace, just to redeem our souls, but our whole beings, body and soul. Our glorification, then, is what the Bible calls, or the, the name the Bible gives it, when, when our bodies are raised from the dead healed in every way. Again, I I prayed earlier, there's people watching online that can't be here because they're struggling so badly physically. They just, they can't make it. This is good news for them. It's good news for all of us. But what will happen here is that our bodies, when they're raised from the dead, they will be healed in every way. Every sickness, every weakness, every difficulty, every blemish will be done away with fully and finally. And they will be reunited with our souls. And it is in this condition that we will exist in perfect fellowship with God and man in the new heavens and the new earth. It is at this point that our salvation will be complete and we will be wholly restored, completely restored from all of sin's effects, both spiritual and physical. That's awesome. But how do we know that this will happen, when it will happen, and what it will be like? To answer those questions and just a couple more, really quickly, we turn to our passage for this morning now for a couple of brief lessons about what it means that we will be raised and what it means to live now like that. Here's the first one. There was debate among the Jewish people. We see from the First Corinthians 15 passage and other places. And the Sadducees in particular, this group of religious leaders called the Sadducees, didn't believe in the resurrection at all. And even within the early church, this was a question that they were wrestling with, whether or not God's people would be raised from the dead. And that's why Paul wrote in verse 12, Now if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say there is no resurrection from the dead? For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. If there's no resurrection, there's no resurrection, is what he's saying. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile. And you're still in your sins. Bad news. In verses 12 through 19, Paul argued emphatically, get this, get this grace, that Jesus' resurrection, your resurrection, and your forgiveness of sins are all inseparably linked. They can't be detached one from another. If one is false, they're all false. 
In other words, if Easter is a lie and Jesus did not raise from the dead, then there is no forgiveness of sins and there is no resurrection of the dead for you or for anyone else. Our hope for forgiveness and resurrection both hinge on whether or not Jesus did rise. Second, as emphatic as Paul was in that, he was equally emphatic about something else. But Christ, but in fact, look at verse 20, but in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead. More still, for as by a man, that is Adam, came death, by a man, Jesus, has come also the resurrection from the dead. So again, in verse 12, verses 12 through 19, get this, Grace, Paul argued that Jesus' resurrection, our resurrection and our forgiveness of sins, are tied together in a way that they cannot be separated. Again, if one is false, all are false, but you already know where we're going, right? In the same way, if one is true, all are true. And since Jesus did rise, there is real forgiveness and resurrection for all who trust in him. Jesus is risen, and we will rise indeed. We will rise, Grace. Let's live like it. I'll tell you how in a minute. Third, third, there's six, third. Third, we will rise when Jesus returns. That's the time of our resurrection. Verse 22, for as in Adam all die, so also in Christ all will be made alive. But each in his own order, Christ the first fruits, first to rise from the dead, then at his coming, when he returns, those who belong to Christ. When Jesus returns, our, our passage tells us, get this, so the when is when Jesus returns, the what is total victory. This passage tells us that he will destroy every rule and authority that has set itself up against the Father. He will put every single thing that has ever been in opposition against him under his feet, including, and finally, death itself. That's why we celebrate Easter as death's funeral. Should have worn black. And he will deliver all, all of this conquered kingdom over to the Father. The time of Jesus' return and our resurrection will be a time of total victory, grace, for the Son of God and all who have trusted in him will reign with him over all that had been his opposition. We will rise, Grace. Let's live like it. Fourth, the church in Corinth seems to have gotten all kinds of things bonkers. They had all kinds of things backwards in their thinking and all kinds of things. Among the things they really didn't understand and couldn't get right is the fact that the dead will rise, as we just saw, and the fact that the dead will rise into a glorious condition. <clears throat> that is why we call it glorification. The same glorious condition that Jesus possessed after his resurrection. In verses 35 to 49, Paul insisted that our resurrected bodies, write this down, tell somebody about this, will be glorious, imperishable, honorable, and powerful there is one glory of the sun and another of the moon, one glory of the stars, for, and another glory for the stars. For star differs from star in glory. So it is with the resurrection of the dead. What is sown in, what is sown is perishable, our, our earthly bodies. What is raised is imperishable, our glorified bodies. It is sown in dishonor, it is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness, it is raised in power. As I mentioned just a minute ago, every defect, Every weakness of our earthly bodies will be perfectly healed and strengthened. This is the time in which we will run and never grow weary. This is the time when our divine image bearing will be full. 
This is the time when all of our physical pain will be no more, that all that sin has corrupted will be restored. This is when the fullness of Jesus' promise, this is when the fullness of life that Jesus promised will begin in eternal earnest. We will rise, Grace. Let's live like it. Fifth, when Jesus returns, all who had previously died will be raised from dust to glory, and all who are still alive at that time will be raised straight to glory. That's what he means in 53. For this perishable body must put on the imperishable, and this mortal body must put on immortality. And when that happens, grace... Uh, When that happens, when the perishable puts on the imperishable and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that we love to sing. Death is swallowed up in victory. Oh, death, where is your victory? It's nowhere. Oh, death, where is your sting? It's gone. The sting of death is sin, which is done away with forever. And the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. The death of death that Jesus secured on the cross will finally come to pass when we are raised from the dead. We will be raised, Grace. And when we, when we are, death will be swallowed up completely in victory. Death's sting will forever be removed. And in our glorified bodies, we will live forever in perfect fellowship with God and one another, and we will never die. We will rise, Grace. And so let's, let's live like it. How do we do that? That's the last point. Verses 29 to 34 and the very last verse, 58. Paul taught all of this because God inspired him to do so. But God also inspired him to believe this himself and not doubt. In his life then, and even in this passage, we're given a glimpse of what it really looks like to live in light of the fact now that we will be raised from the dead. Look at verse 30. Why am I in danger every hour, he said. I protest, brothers, by my pride in you, which I have in Christ Jesus our Lord. I die every day. What do I gain if, humanly speaking, I fought with the beasts at Ephesus? Kind of a weird deal, but here's what he's saying. Paul lived in constant danger by proclaiming Christ to the nations, by traveling and declaring the gospel to the lost. He was in constant danger of death. People wanted to kill him all over the place. He slept out in the wilderness, and wild beasts literally would come after him. He was in a constant battle with the forces of evil. But because, what difference does it make to know that we too will rise from the dead? Even though he was in danger constantly, persecuted constantly, he he continued to proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ without fear. Paul knew that it was not death to die. And so he was free to obey in courage and confidence. He knew that even if the worst happened on earth, the the worst thing that could have happened on earth, that would not be his end. Far from it. It would be the beginning of his everlasting life. He would be raised from the dead like Jesus was because Jesus was. About to land this plane. You with me still? Here it is. The main way we live in light of our resurrection is through the kind of fearless obedience to the commands of God that we see in Paul. To obey Jesus is to invite scorn and mockery, probably at most in our culture, at least right now. Around much of the world, it's to invite persecution and possibly even death. 
but the knowledge that we will rise again and that death on earth, the death of our bodies, merely hastens us home, merely brings us more quickly into the presence of God. The fact that we will rise again gives us a kind of fearless obedience to God. We are compelled to worship and share the gospel in light of Jesus' resurrection, and we are free to do so everywhere and always because of ours. You with me? You with me, Grace? Therefore, he says, my beloved brothers, be steadfast. Be steadfast. What does it mean to live in light of the fact that you will be raised from the dead? Be steadfast. Don't be moved. Be immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord. Come, Come what may, whatever may, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain, for you too will be risen from the dead. He is risen, Grace Church. He is risen indeed. And so will we be also. Amen.